Take your in God's word to John chapter twelve. Stand again for the reading of God's holy inspired word, John twelve, verse thirty four. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever, and how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah spoke when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Thus far, God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let us pray. O Lord our God, as we continue to worship you, come now in our worship to the time when we hear your word open and preached according to Christ's appointment. Father, we thank you that you have raised up men to preach the word from the time of the apostles, even unto our day. Father, we ask that as we are here to be under the word, that you would give us humble hearts, yielded, submissive, ready to hear. Give us understanding by the work of your spirit. May your word be proclaimed with clarity. May Christ be set before our eyes that we might see him with the eye of faith and praise and magnify his name. That as he speaks to us, Lord, that we would be equipped, built up, and prepared to go out into the world to do good works for his glory. That we might shine forth the light of the Lord Jesus Christ and men would be drawn unto him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Many of you have seen the Lord of the Rings movies or have read the books or perhaps both. And uh, there's that time when it seems as though the darkness from Mordor, the Black Mountains, is spreading out over all of the Middle Earth. Sometimes it would appear, many times in our day, it would seem as though the darkness is spreading. Scripture even speaks of how wickedness will increase and rise and those who do wickedness will multiply. Why is that? Why is it that darkness multiplies when Christ has been sent into the world and the light of Christ shines forth? It shines forth wherever Christ is proclaimed and wherever his people walk in obedience. Well, that question was answered in John 3. It's because people love the darkness. And they refuse to come to the light because upon coming to the light, their deeds are exposed and it is shown that they are evil. Furthermore, in our day, we see many in the visible church, many visible churches 
Congregations that name Christ and call themselves Christians are compromised with the truth. They compromise the truth. And even Christians who live their lives pretty much like those in the world around them so that there's no real distinction. There's a, an overshadowing of the truth that uh, we're not shining forth with the brilliance of Christ living in us. And so the darkness overtakes that light. Jesus commands us to let our light so shine before men that they will see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And when we fail to do that, the light is shrouded though it endures. Isaiah experienced uh, darkness in his day. I think it's a real blessing that we're working through Isaiah even as we work through John. They, They marry and partner so well. There's so much overlap and commonality with him. But in Isaiah's days, back in the Earlier chapters, um, chapter 6, we heard how in Isaiah's days at the time, there was darkness. After 52 years of a reign, King Uzziah died. And it was in the time of Uzziah's death that the prophet, I'm sorry, the king Uzziah's death, that the prophet Isaiah had gone up to the temple seeking the light from God to shine into the darkness of his grief. And it was there that Isaiah wrote those famous opening words of chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. As John records the final days of Jesus' earthly ministry, he recalls Isaiah's words, and the Holy Spirit reveals to him that glory that Isaiah saw that he saw in that glory, he saw the Lord Jesus Christ. John is connecting that event here, that the one that Isaiah saw was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who John has behold in the flesh. In verse 41, Isaiah's vision, we see, came at a critical time in the history of Israel. And now Israel that is, at that time, it would prove to be an even greater moment. For Isaiah sees a vision, but Israel in this day, in which John is writing, that one who was seated on the throne is in the midst of his people. He has come to Israel, he has come to his own, and they have not received him, rather they have rejected him, and soon they will seize him. In the text we've seen that Jesus prayed to his father, back in verse 28, that God would glorify his name. And the fathers answered him, I have and I will glorify it again. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the one that John introduced to us in his preface or prologue. Jesus is the light of the world which gives light to every man coming into the world. John 1, 9. And Jesus invites men to come out of the darkness, to come to him, to come to the light. He who is the light, the light of the world. And Jesus is still inviting men, women, boys and girls today, even this day, to come out of the darkness by coming to him. There is no other way to come out of the darkness other than coming to the one who is light. We're going to use four main headings this morning. As I told you last week, we're going to consider this son of man that is mentioned in verse 34. The question is posed, who is the Son of Man? We're going to look at that. Then we're going to consider an invitation to walk in the light. It's an invitation that Jesus extends. And then we'll consider the tragedy of walking in darkness. And then finally we'll conclude with hope for the future. So we begin with the Son of Man. 
the light of the world is the Lord Jesus Christ. God come in the flesh. God come in the flesh to save sinners. Even as he is foretold that he would all the way from the garden when Adam first sinned, that the seed of the woman would come to crush the serpent said. That is to crush and destroy all that was in opposition to God, all that was wicked and evil. Now the Lord Jesus Christ, by the prophets, through the prophets, and even in the Gospels, is called by many names. And the reason that is, is because who he is, and the vastness of, of who he is in his work that's come to do, it takes many titles and many descriptions uh, to seek to encompass and describe such a glorious one. As he is. Last week I said that we would consider the title that Jesus most often used for himself, the Son of Man. The Son of Man is used at least 80 times in the gospel. And in John's gospel it occurs 13 times. Here are some of these that we've already covered, all but one of these that we're going to consider. Back in John 151, he said to him, this is the Father, uh, most assuredly, I say to you, after you shall see, I'm sorry, Jesus speaking, after, most assuredly, I say to you, after you see, that, um, after you see, I'll get the tense right, after you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You will remember that we see in that text that Jesus is Jacob's ladder. He is the one who trans heaven to earth. He's the one that's come from the Father. It is the first time in John's Gospel that he refers to himself as the Son of Man. And chapter three, thirteen, Jesus continuing to speak, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. The very next verse, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Then to John five twenty seven, as and as uh, uh, and has been given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So he's some, and a part of this office that is connected to who he is, it is to exercise judgment, both in that day and in the world to come. In the um, sixth chapter where we had the, the discourse after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus' lengthy discourse about the bread, he says to the people, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life which the Son of Man will give you. So we see another aspect of this office, this whole disposition that he holds, that he is the one who gives everlasting life. And then later on, 653, then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Very mysterious passage that we unpacked some weeks back. And then in verse 62 of the same chapter, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? And of course that was very offensive to the people. And then in chapter 828, then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of myself, but as the Father taught me, I speak these things. And we see that Jesus, as the Son of Man, completely yielded submission to the Father, doing the will of the Father. We've already seen several times in these statements that Jesus made that there's going to be this lifting up. He's just mentioned that here in the 12th chapter, and the people are understanding that it's a crucifixion uh, that he speaks of. And then in 9.35, Jesus heard they had cast him out. This was the blind man. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Isn't that remarkable that he comes to the man who is blind? And refers to himself after that manner. 
And then most recently in chapter 12, 23, Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. We just were dealing with that a couple weeks ago. And then in the text before us, John 12 and verse 34, we find that it is twice said there. The people said to him, they're speaking back to him. Now his words we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? It'll be what one more occasion that we'll come to in the next chapter in verse 31. So except for John twelve thirty four, no one uses this term but Jesus. And as we just heard in verse 34, it's the people repeating back to him what he has said, this claim and then asking this question, who is the Son of Man? In that case, the people are inquisitive. They've come to understand, as we saw last week, that they understand that the Son of Man is connected to the Messiah, and that's who he's claiming to be. And he has just said that he must be lifted up, the Son of Man must be lifted up, and they understood that to be a lifting up unto death. Although there are things they do not understand, things they cannot connect, they're connecting that in their understanding, the connection with a serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness The title that Jesus uses for himself is taken from Daniel 7. If you turn with me, Daniel chapter 7 in verse 13. We find it used back to back here by Daniel in 7, 13 and 14. As I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Daniel's seen this vision of kingdoms coming and going, and then there's the a rock that is taken out of the mountain, not by human hands. And he goes forth as this rock and crushes the nations before him. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's this connection to the Son of Man, who's given this rule and reign that transcends all kingdoms. And as we know him from the New Testament, he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who reigns on high. Later on, John will be... Uh, On the Lord's Day, on the Isle of Patmos, and he will have that vision that we know as the book of Revelation. And early on, as that begins, John says that he sees in the vision one rocking around in the midst of the seven lampstands. One who is the Son of Man. It's um, later again in verse 14, 14, John will behold a white cloud, and on the cloud set one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and on his hand, or in his hand, a sharp sickle. So, from these texts, we see that the Son of Man is one from heaven, one who has come to the earth, one who has become man. These, this is the incarnation, is what is spoken of here. This God come in the flesh, and we most often, and you most ordinarily hear for me, refer to Christ as the God Man, which is a shorthand for saying he's the Son of God. And he's the Son of Man. He is the one who is eternal with the Father. He is the one who has come in the flesh as the second Adam to fulfill which the first Adam has failed to do. He is the one that has come down even as he's just told the people that he would be lifted up. That he would come into the world to save his people from their sins through his sacrifice. He is also the one to whom God has given all judgment of all men. 
In Revelation, John again will see him seated on the great right throne with all the nations assembled before him. Uh, a, a richer picture of what that parable that Jesus tells of the, the righteous one seated on his throne with the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his right hand, passing judgment upon all of humanity. There's echoes of Psalm 2 where we are told that the Father has given to him a kingdom that he has seated above the nations so that the kings that plot against him, they do so in vain because he has been established as the Lord is anointed to rule over the nations. Not just as the Son of God, not as God, he always has done that, but also then in the flesh as the Son of Man, the second Adam, fulfilling what the first Adam failed to do, bringing a dominion over all the earth, all of creation, bringing it all under him so that it is all subdued before him and then delivering the whole up to the Father, accomplishing the very work that was given to him to do. It's very clear from the way that Jesus uses this title that it has nothing to do with the political systems or governments of men. His nature of his kingdom, it's not of this world, as he tells Pilate. It's a much greater kingdom. It's a kingdom over all. And so, therefore, the Son of Man is altogether unique amongst men. He's not a Son of Man. He is the Son of Man. That is to say, there is no other. There is only Him and Him alone. And as the Christ, the God-Man, He will suffer and die for sinners. It's, it seems so paradigmic that he who is great and majestic and exalted, that he should be the one that should be brought low in a crucifixion on a cross. That he who is holy and righteous, spotless before God, that he should take on himself the sins of his people and suffer in their place. And yet this is what he's done, and he does so as the Son of Man. So it is that as man, he accomplishes the will of God He completes his God-given work to bring salvation to his people. And indeed, it is because of this that his suffering will result in his glory, in the great glory unto the Father. Again, we think of Paul's words in Philippians 2. It's because he has done this. He's been willing to do this. Therefore, God has given him a name that is above every name. says the Son of Man fulfilling and obedience as Adam, all that the Father had given to him. And when Jesus comes at the last day, it will be as though he reaches back across through the entirety of the history of the earth. And through all his suffering and through all of his redemptive acts, saying, I am the Son of Man. I have done all that the Father has given me to do. He came down from the Father He speaks of his heavenly father. There's a link in him between heaven and earth, as we've heard, uh, the picture of Jacob's ladder. All authority from heaven, uh, he's been given all authority from heaven to judge all people. He completes a heaven-given mission, suffering and dying to save his people, that he is also the bread of heaven, that men must eat in order to live. And therefore... This Lord Jesus Christ, this Son of Man, must be the sole object of our faith. We must place our hope in no other. Our faith must rest on no other. We should wholly be devoted unto Him. We should give ourselves over completely to obedience of this one who is the Son of Man, our elder brother, the firstborn of God, the one who came into the world to save us, that He might bring us to God. We dare not 
look to any other. We dare not set our affections on any other. Is that not the great struggle that we have as we walk out our days here below? And thus, it's a blessing when we come together in our worship service week by week. We hear the law of God, that we should be reminded of how we've broken it, and that we should seek grace and forgiveness from the Father through the Son of Man, through the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in Him there is salvation, and in no other. Do you see this glorious one? Do you see this one as he's revealed in the scripture, the Son of Man, um, the work that he's been given to do is whole and complete and comprehensive. It's vast in its implications, and yet he has completed it, so that your hope can be in him, for he has said, it is finished. That is that all that the Father gave him to do, he has accomplished Does your heart leap for joy at the sight of the Son of Man when you would behold him with your eye of faith? Does it cause your heart to rise up with joy, to give unto him, to ascribe unto him glory and dominion and power and majesty? For no other is worthy but this one who is the Son of Man. You dare to turn away from him and look on any other. Yea, all too often we do. Do you dare fix your affection on a lesser being? In rebellion, we often do. But my dearly beloved brethren and sisters, see Jesus, the Son of God. So one that we come to that even when we have failed and disobeyed and rebelled against him, that we come to him for his gracious and merciful and strong to save. We will see in a little bit in this passage, even as Jesus speaks on this last occasion, the grace of God to sinners. That brings us then to an invitation to walk in the light. I've referred to this several times because of significance, but just turn back with me. John chapter 3, after his engagement with Nicodemus. If you have a red-letter Bible, you'll find that this is in red. That's, I, I think that really that's a mistake, that uh, really these are John's words, as he often does, inserting uh, comments, uh, explanations. But in verse 18, John three eighteen, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not... Because he is, uh, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light of the world has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Why is this room not packed? Why are we not gathered in a larger facility that would hold thousands? For indeed, all around us, there are thousands of people. Why do they not come to the house of God? Why do they not come to worship God, to come under the sound of the gospel and to meet with God Almighty through the Lord Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit would enable us as we seek to do? It's because their deeds are evil. They don't want to come to the light. Do we not find that ourselves when we come to worship? There's a sense in which we're reminded of our sin. We're reminded of our disobedience and our rebellion. We we come into the presence of the light. And yet we come because we've come to understand that he who is light is the one who saves us. The one who provides cleansing for us. The one who has rescued and delivered us. We come to the light. For in the light we find life. The people then, they have no faith in their heart. And so they've responded to Jesus' clear revelation about himself that he's the Son of Man with this cynical response. 
Verse 34, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? There's a certain cynicism in their comment. And as I said last week, their question will uh, really, the sense of what they're saying is, what kind of man is this Son of Man? As we just heard in our first point, he is totally unique. There's no other like him. He's the God-man. They want to know who is this that's going to be lifted up to die, even though the law says that Christ remains forever. That's one of the marvelous things about Isaiah 53. I think, I think that you wouldn't be very familiar, particularly with that chapter. And you hear how that he's cut down without offspring. He, when he perishes, he has nothing, no one to leave anything to. And yet, later on in that same chapter, we hear how he has this host of those who are his heritage, who receive from him an inheritance, who are his, indeed his inheritance, even though he was cut down without offspring. Even in his sacrifice, it is that he receives completely those who the Father has given to him. And then he brings those to the Father. This is a mystery of the work of Christ. It's the mystery of God in the gospel that he's revealed, foretold through the prophets, explained in the gospels, and opened fully through the apostles' writings. This one who saves sinners, this one who is God come in the flesh. In verses 35 and 36, we see Jesus respond. It's not so much an answer to their question. We've gone elsewhere to consider what is the answer to that question. It's more of a response to their question, reminding them of their responsibility. They are in darkness. They don't want to come to the light. They object to this idea that he is the light, and they refuse to come out of the darkness to him. And yet we see here from Christ a gracious invitation. This is a final appeal. This is the final public engagement that he will have. His final sermon, if you will. And he makes an appeal. Because when he leaves, as we saw at the end of the discourse, he departed from them and he was hidden from them. John began this gospel by telling you and I that Jesus is the light. The light long being a symbol of God. A picture of who he is. Remember how God went before his people for the 40 years in the wilderness. At night he was that pillar of fire. A light in the dark place. Pointing to him. Leading them. Guiding them as they went along. David celebrated God as the light in Psalm 27. He said, the God is the light of my salvation. And there are many other passages. The reality is as sinners we do not naturally know God. Nor will we seek after him. But no, he comes as a light, to make himself known to us and to draw us out of the darkness of sin and deliver us from the kingdom of darkness. That's what Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the light. Reveals the Father to us. The glory of the Father is in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we should behold him, behold the Father. Jesus said, in me, if you've known me, you know the Father. Paul will write also, I think, in the book of Colossians, that in him, that is in Christ, dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so we see Jesus warning them, verse 35, a little while longer, the light is with you. And then there's this invitation, walk while you have the light. He invites them to come walk while you have the light. A little while longer. There's a warning that the light is going to withdraw. The light will go away. 
We hear echoes from elsewhere in Scripture. Now is the day of salvation. Respond to the light. Come to the light. Jesus is saying that a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light. Why? Lest the darkness overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. We've seen how great the opposition of the religious leaders has been to Jesus. They have opposed him, it would seem, at every turn. They are in darkness, and they're blind in their sin. They do not want anything to do with the light. Jesus' teaching and preaching was very the, tr- the very truth. The people responded. He, he preaches like no other we've ever heard. He preaches with authority. Uh, he's done mighty miracles and everything. And, and the Pharisees are aware of these. They've seen these things. They've beheld Lazarus raised from the tomb. Uh, they've had to encounter the reality of the man born blind whom Jesus has given sight to. And yet they remain in their darkness. But is it not remarkable that Jesus... In this moment, this is the last moment, Jesus does not thunder and call down bolts of lightning like John and James want to do as the sons of thunder. No, he invites them to come to the light. My friends, if you are a sinner without Christ, see how gracious God is. You live your life in rebellion against him. You mock his holy law. You rebel against him even as you would rebel against your parents, children. You're rebelling against the Lord God Almighty because of the darkness. And yet Jesus does not call for your destruction. Jesus invites you to come to the light, to come to him. As we heard in the opening, Jesus invites us to come to him. His burden is easy. It is light. Jesus invites us to come out from the bondage of sin and to be set free. These Pharisees are overtaken by darkness and they refuse to come. We see the hardness of their heart, but even as things are progressing along, uh, John records in such a way that we understand that they're further hardening their hearts toward God. For them who refuse to come to the light, waits the deepest, darkest judgment in hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so it is for all that would reject this gracious invitation of Jesus to come to the light. Before we move on, let me just say, sinners, Jesus is inviting you to come out of the darkness. What is it like to live in the darkness? You know, every night we experience when the sun sets, and if we did not have street lights and lights in our home, can you imagine what it would be like to make your way about and do anything? You would not do much. You'd be like the peoples of old. When the sun sent, you went to bed because there was no light uh, to do anything by. It becomes dangerous. You know, we've all stubbed the toe or stepped on the Lego or tripped over something in the night because trying to walk around in the darkness is dangerous. How much more so spiritually? How much more so trying to live your life with darkness? Oh, you would say, I can see. I see where I'm going, but do you really see where you're going? Do you understand that you're on a broad path that leads to destruction? And many are those with you happily, merrily going along the path, and what awaits at the other end is a cliff that drops into the abyss of the wrath of God and judgment forever. Jesus says, those who walk in the darkness, they don't know where they're going. There's no exceptions. There's not a little footnote there where it's a footnote says accept and then fill in your name. It applies to all. If we walk in the darkness, we don't know where we're going. And yet Jesus, merciful, 
long-suffering, strong to save, evil to, even able to save to the uttermost. He's opposed by these sinners, and yet Jesus invites them to come to the light. Would you come to the light? Would you come to Christ? Don't be one who hears the final words of Christ of rebuke and condemnation. Now here is gracious invitation to come to the light. Thirdly, we will consider the tragedy of walking in the darkness. We've already touched on it. It's necessary that as we consider the light that we do so in contrast to the darkness. But in this context, John writes verse 31 or 37 to 41 as a postscript. John's writing. The, the sermon has come to an end at this point. And John's writing the realities. Jesus has spoken of the darkness and how it blinds men's hearts so they don't know where they're going. In Jesus' day, And even in our day, men, women, boys, and girls are walking in darkness. They're walking on that broad way. What does John say, verse 37? But although he had done so many signs. Hear the emphasis? He had done so many signs. Commentators are agreed, agreed, and I agree with them too. He's not necessarily saying consider the breadth of them all. They're not all recorded. John says at the end of this book, if they were all recorded, all the works that he did, the world could not contain the whole of what would be written about him. But most specific, more specifically, most immediately, the healing of a man born blind. And even that man said, consider it from the beginning of history, has anything ever been reported like this? And then on the heels of that, a four-day dead man, Lazarus, is called forth out of the tomb, and that which was corrupt was made incorrupt, and that which was dead was made alive, so that Lazarus heard the voice of his master saying, Lazarus, come forth, and he came out, and it was undisputable. And the Pharisees, uh, their whole ship and their whole enterprise was rocked by that, so much so that they wanted to destroy Lazarus, because as long as he lived, that testimony would endure. Although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe. These signs are before you. We hear these things from the word of God. These are faithful and true accounts. This is a witness, a testimony to the reality of who he is. But John goes on. Why? That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which was spoken. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. He's talking about people of that generation. So he continues on, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded the eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. John recognizes that what is happening right before him is the fulfillment of the prophecy given through Isaiah. When Isaiah began his ministry, we know that sixth chapter, what a remarkable extraordinary, unique event that he sees Christ lifted up in glory and exalted on the throne before he is coming to the world. He sees him displayed in splendor in his holiness with myriads of angels all around crying out, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah falls on his face. He says, I am rent asunder. I am ruined. I am destroyed because I have seen the Almighty. But God in his mercy sends the angel to touch his lips picture of the work of Christ to cleanse us from our sin. And Isaiah is commissioned. God says to him, Isaiah, I'm going to send you to a people. I'm going to put my word in your mouth, and you're going to proclaim my truth. But Isaiah, no one's going to listen to you. 
I'm a preacher, called out by God. I rejoice, I marvel that I'm even in such an office. But if the Lord had told me when he called me to be a preacher, that, you know, when I graduated from seminary and I sustained my ordination exams before the presbytery and that I would take this pulpit and another pulpit and another pulpit, but Daniel, you're never going to see any converts. That would have been disheartening. But in a sense, that's the nature of the prophetic word, uh, prophetic ministry, even as it continues in the office of a preacher today. My Hebrew professor had us translate Ezekiel 37, the valley of the dry bones. We talked about how to preach it. And before he wrapped up, he says, I want you to understand, men, when you step into the pulpit, that's what's before you, dry bones. And if the spirit does not come, nothing will happen. It's humbling, completely dependent. Even as Isaiah, completely dependent upon God Almighty, that if anything would happen from the faithful proclamation of the word of God, it's because God comes and moves. So that if we here assembled have new hearts, have been born from above, have been born of the Spirit, if we've been baptized with the fire of the Spirit and made anew into Christ, regenerated from the corruption of sin, if that's the reality of our lives, it's all of God. It's all the work of God. It's what the Spirit of the living God has done. Because like for Ezekiel, the Spirit has come and blown upon the dead bodies and made us to live. John, quoting from Isaiah, recognizes the reality. There's a judgment from God here. As I said, the tragedy of darkness. There's a a judgment of God here that he, uh, visiting upon those who rebel, there's this idea of reprobation. That they have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They don't have a heart of understanding. Their hearts are hardened. And my friends, that is the reality for every single sinner, apart from the merciful, mighty, powerful working of the living God. If we hear God calling us, if we feel the Spirit stirring us with a recognition that, I'm a sinner. I'm in this darkness. I'm under this wrath. I need a Savior. I need someone to rescue me. That is a time to run to Christ, not to make excuses. Don't look to respond from the hardness, but cry out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Oh, God, take away my hard, dead heart. Oh, God, open my eyes that I would see and perceive, that I would hear your word in an effectual way within me. That's the prayer of a sinner. Christ has sent his spirit to work upon. Don't resist that work. Because God in righteousness will harden your heart. Remember Pharaoh? As Moses goes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, we're told, hardened his heart. He hardened his heart against the prophet of God. Let my people go. No. And we're told that he hardened his heart, I think, three times. And then we're told that God harden his heart so that the glory and the majesty of God and so there's ten plagues all the way to the time where the firstborn throughout all of the land including Pharaoh's firstborn are struck down by the death angel in the night God broke him he brought him to that point even as he had hardened his heart God consistent with what was in his heart hardened his heart and his nature was proved my friends that happens in sinners today you resist you push back Refuse to come. You reason within yourself. You argue, well, that's a good idea. Well, I need to do that someday, but not today. I I still got some wild, riotous living I want to do. 
I don't want to be changed. I enjoy my sins. That's a hardening of your heart against God. And God be just. And even as the scripture says, he has blinded their eyes. My friends, if the spirit is calling you, if he is stirring your heart, come, cry out. God have mercy. Because Jesus has told us back in chapter 6, he says, no one comes to me except the Father draw him. And no one that comes to the Father by me. You cannot do it. Your response is just one of cry for mercy. God, save me. Because you cannot save yourself. That's the tragedy of darkness. The tragedy of darkness is that you heap up further judgments upon yourself. You resist and go on. Furthermore, as I've said many times, we, apart from Christ, are like Lazarus' dead body in the tomb, which can do nothing. And so it is with you. What's been happening through Jesus' ministry is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 61. Jesus takes up from the scroll that day that he's in the synagogue in Nazareth, and he reads from there. I believe it's in chapter 4 of Luke. You might remember when Pastor Tony preached from that. Jesus reads these words, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are born. Brown, and Jesus says today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. He's the one that came to do that. And all these mighty signs testified to who he was, the greatness of who he was. What greater sons, signs could he have done? Yes, he raised the widow of Nain's uh, body, even as he was, you know, had recently died. He was being carried out to be buried. But with Lazarus, four days, indisputable, the man is dead. There's no doubt in my mind when they rolled that stone back that anybody in proximity got the whiff of the stench of death. There was no question Lazarus was dead. And yet it was a simple thing for Jesus to speak as the Son of God, the God-man, the Son of Man, doing the will of the Father, Lazarus, come forth. And so it is with your heart. Jesus speaks and he calls you out of darkness, out of corruption. He makes you alive and gone into salvation. The tragedy of darkness is to refuse, to resist. We hear these mighty signs of wonder. Are they not enough to cause men and women, boys and girls, to come to God? No. They're not enough. The people wanted a sign. Jesus said the only sign you have is the sign of Jonah. That is, Jonah in the belly of the whale, compared to Jesus in the belly of the earth, in the tomb, until the third morn. And even with those things, it was not enough. It was necessary for the spirit of the living God to work. And so uh, Jesus is referred here in Isaiah 53, referred to in Isaiah 53. He's called the suffering servant. We, we have finished chapter 41 this morning. In 42, we're going to be pretty much focused on Christ moving forward, even in John's gospel as we are moving towards the cross. It will be a wonderful parallel and lessons all along the way. But in John 38, it is a quoting from Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Explaining that the reason why the Jews did not believe, it was so that the word of God would be fulfilled in them. 
They could not believe, is what verse 39 is saying. Why? Because God in his righteous judgment has hardened hearts. He's doing his holy will. And yet, God still has a plan. God will call a people to himself. This reality that we're hearing about, the hardness of their heart, their blindness, their resistance, their unwillingness, was part of God's plan for the fulfillment of his purpose in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what Paul, uh, Peter preaches about in Acts 2. If you turn there with me in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, as the Spirit has come down, filled the people of God, and they begin to proclaim the wonders of God, the Word of God to the people. And Peter at that occasion proclaims to them from Scripture the reality of what God is doing. Acts 2.22 the men of Israel to Peter says, Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man, echoes of the Son of Man, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Determined purpose and the foreknowledge of God you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Do you see the sovereignty of God and human responsibility in that one statement by Peter? Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was impossible that he should be held by it. The hardening of the Jews at that time, just like the hardening of Pharaoh in days gone by, was to bring about the purpose of God. The people were resolute. The religious leaders were determined. And then they got the chorus of the people with them. For the people were stirred up and they shouted out, crucify him. So that they were all against him because this was the will of God. The Christ would be lifted up. So that indeed all who would look to him may live. This was the will of God. It was being accomplished in that time. What we see here is that the word of God is like a two-edged sword, even as Hebrews 4.12 says. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. When it cuts men's hearts, it does so, giving life to those who believe, and as we would think of the other edge, dispensing judgment on those who refuse to believe. And when the word of God, the gospel of God is proclaimed, that sword of the Spirit goes forth, and it cuts hearts. Some believing unto salvation, and others hardened against God. And this is why Jesus warns as he did in verse 35. A little while longer, the light is with you. What does that indicate? The light's going away. The opportunity is here now. God is graciously, freely offering salvation to whosoever will that may come. And indeed, how great is the wrath that will fall upon those who reject him. One more thing, this hardening of the heart of God through the gospel of God is the natural fruit of a heart that is dead in sin. It does not, it cannot seek after God. And God justly responds with justice upon the Jews who had so long rejected him. This period of time when Jesus comes into the world, this is a culmination. God has sent to them prophets you look at some of the major, major prophets and you say, um, I'm trying to remember if it's Ezekiel, I believe it's Ezekiel, where God says, and I sent my prophets to you early and often. That refrain occurs over and over and over again. Has God been long-suffering? 
Has God come to them with his word? Has God come to stir them up? Has God God called them to obedience, calling them back to himself? Are there not many accounts of reminding them of the days of Egypt and bringing them out? There's the Psalms that they would have used in the temple worship, um, speaking of the mighty acts of God through the deliverance through Moses with the plagues that afflicted that mighty superpower and God completely humbled them and then plundered them as he put the wealth of Egypt in the hands of his people and led them out to a land that he had promised to give them. This story of the Exodus is rehearsed over and over and over. This is their story. This is their God, the God of Jacob, who's been faithful to them. And they would not. And so when we read, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. It's judgment on a people. God hasn't come just once. He's been coming consistently over hundreds of years. And they refuse to come. My friends, let this be a warning to any hearing the preached word of God today, anywhere and everywhere. Do not delay. Do not put off until tomorrow what you should do today. God is offering you salvation. And God commands you to come to Jesus and believe on him for salvation. Do not delay. Do not refuse this offer. Do not reject Jesus as the Jews did. Dare not say, perhaps tomorrow. I'll wait until a more convenient time. Now is the day of salvation. Every time you hear the gospel preached could be your last. There is a time when the light will depart. I served first congregation. I served with an elder. He had a large family. One of his sons rebelled and walked after the man of the world. Was living with another man and this past week, in an instant, a drunk driver hit the car those two young men were in, and they were ushered before the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ for judgment. Um, about a year ago, the last place that I served, a wonderful young lady, daughter of one of our elders, engaged with her many times. She trusted in the Lord. She married, was living in South Carolina. For whatever reason, her husband ran a stop sign, and a commercial vehicle hit them, and they both left to stand before the throne of Christ. Did they know that? In those two cases, did those people know that that morning? Did they know that was going to happen? Some of you have been in accidents. You don't foresee it. You don't see it coming. You don't feel it. That's why Jesus is so insistent with these men. While the light is still with you, come to the light. The light will not always be here. There's an urgency to the message of coming to the light and escaping the tragedy of darkness. But we consider there's hope for the future. John writes of dark days in Jerusalem. Jesus, the light of the world, has just preached life-saving truth to those who are perishing. And they are displaying all the hardness of a heart that is found in every unrepentant sinner. The darkness is spreading from Mount Zion. As the Jews, their religious leaders, their Pharisees are moving forward to arrest Jesus, to put him to death. They hate him with a vehemence. And they want to silence him, and indeed they will. It's as though the darkness would triumph. Satan is working through all his means and machinations. We're even told in the scripture he entered Judas. One of the twelve. Satan entered him. He was a son of perdition. Scripture says of him it would have been better if that man had never been born. But Judas acted freely and willingly to do what he did. All this darkness seems as though there would be a triumph. But even as we are in this dark passage, notice the glimmer of hope John gives in verse 42. And even introduces it that way. Nevertheless, 
Is that not a transition that leaves you with hope? Nevertheless, even among the, men, the rulers, many believed in him. The rulers would tend to be the elders of the people from the 12 tribes that served in Sanhedrin as well. But because of the Pharisees, which is the sect, a political party, mostly of the priests, they did not confess him. Why? Lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Is there a conflict in that? Certainly there is. Many believed, and yet they're reluctant to confess. They're afraid of man. They have the fear of man. They're afraid that they should make it known because they don't want to be excommunicated, as it were, put out of the synagogue. They don't want to lose their place of position. Jesus says, if you're afraid to confess to me before men, I won't confess you before my Father. But whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father in that day. And yet there's hope. These men are silent because they love the praise of men. Why is it that we give way to do things that are sinful sometimes? We want to go along with the crowd. It's a real temptation, not just for you young people. It's real for you, but it's real for your parents too. We all know those experiences when we've been quiet, when we should open our mouth, when we should have testified to Christ. We were afraid of what men might think. We might be humiliated. We might lose our jobs. Our neighbors may no longer interact with us. It's costly to follow Jesus. The world will hate you. That's what Jesus said. They hated me. If you're one of mine, they're going to hate you. They persecuted me. You follow me, they will persecute you. It's a reality in the world today, something that has been distanced from us. But as I said in the opening, there seems to be a growing clouds of darkness even in our own land. Persecution has come and it will only increase. We dare not live in the fear of man. We need to let our light shine. Those who dwell in darkness need to see the great light. We've been called as we are going to testify to him, announcing him, proclaiming him, making disciples of those that are around us, announcing them the good news of the gospel that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we get into the book of Acts, Luke will record that when Paul comes to Jerusalem, the apostles who were still there said, and not a few of the priests had believed, which is a roundabout way of saying a lot of the priests have come to the faith. There's a glimmer of hope here. And so it is. Some of you can testify of how God rescued you when you were rebellious. Oh man, my friends, remember this. The glory of man is fading. It's fickled. It's a false glory. But the glory of God endures for all generations. And whatever glory that may be found in us is but a reflection of the glory of God in his people. Isaiah saw the Lord Jesus lifted up in glory. He beheld the holiness of God and he was forever affected so that he, by the grace of God working in him, could be faithful to a ministry that saw no fruit because he had beheld Christ. My friends, let us behold Christ, glorified, lifted up. That's why we gather uh, the first day of the week so that we might, in some sense, be transported back and behold the empty tomb, the empty cross, that we would remember as we come to worship, Christ is not here on the earth in his humanity. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And my friends, he is not sleeping there. He never sleeps. He is ever making intercession for us, that we should not live in the fear of man, that we should not shrink back in the day 
of suffering, but that we should be bold and confident to live for the glory of King Jesus. Father, I pray, open our eyes, right? Open our eyes that we might see Jesus in some sense as Isaiah did. That's part of what happens when we are ushered into the presence of God in our worship. We are reminded of the glory and the majesty of our Savior that we should praise his name. Amen? Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we do pray. Open our eyes that we would see Jesus. Give us the eye of faith to behold the Lord of glory arrayed in majesty on high. He whom even now the angels ever sing holy, holy, holy. Lord, may our hearts also cry that out. And Lord, even as you've called us to be holy as you are holy, we pray, Lord, that we would walk in obedience, apart from the world, set apart, sanctified, holy to the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.